Today's show is a continuation from last week, discussing mysticism, spiritual awakening, and then I answer a question from a listener about the difference between spiritual healing and shamanic healing. Hi, this is Andrew Wayfinder, psychotherapist, life purpose coach, and soul healer in Chelsea, London. You're listening to The Way of the Awakened Soul podcast, a show about finding your soul's purpose and how to use science, psyche, and spirit to guide and follow your true path in life. Tune in weekly for inspiring stories, cutting-edge science, and ideas, along with spirit healing and guidance sessions. Join the show at thewayoftheawakensoul.com to have your questions answered on the air and win a free healing or divination session for yourself. Now, let's get started. So, so we have this, we have this sort of old, you know, original spirituality, original connection through, through shamanism, which goes underground in many ways. We, we start to get the development 10,000 years ago, first with agriculture and then with cities. We start getting hierarchy and structure and order and religions. And for the most part, they start driving out this direct personal connection with spirit. It becomes something that, you know, comes through the priesthood and is controlled by them. So we kind of lose that. But underground, there's always been a mystical tradition. You know, all the different religions have their own mystical branches. And the mystics in all traditions say very similar stuff. We're here to wake up. Just to put that into perspective, I want to read something because it, I think it's very telling. There's a, there's a wonderful Israeli historian, Yuval Noah Harari, who's written the history of, of, of Homo sapiens. And he says, so the animal that became a god. 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens was still an insignificant animal minding its own business in a corner of Africa. In the following millennia, it transformed itself into the master of the entire planet and the terror of the ecosystem. Today, it stands on the verge of becoming a god, poised to acquire not only eternal youth, but also the divine abilities of creation and destruction. Unfortunately, the sapiens regime on Earth has so far produced little that we can be proud of. We have mastered our surroundings, increased food production, built cities, established empires, and created far-flung trade networks. But did we decrease the amount of suffering in the world? Time and time again, massive increases in human power did not necessarily improve the well-being of individuals and usually caused immense misery to other animals and often other cultures. We have advanced from canoes to galleys to steamships to space shuttles, but nobody knows where we're going. We're more powerful than ever before. I've very little idea what to do with all that power. Worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company, we're accountable to no one. We're consequently wreaking havoc on our fellow animals and on the surrounding ecosystem seeking little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? So that's, in a sense, you know, the predicament I think we find ourselves in. I sort of ask the question sometimes is, you know, what do a caterpillar, a modern human, and the caveman all have in common? And you, know, you just think about the life of a caterpillar. You, you know, you're walking along one day, and all of a sudden, you just feel this, this thing happens. And you wrap yourself in a cocoon, you seal yourself off, and then you dissolve. You turn into like acid secretes from the cocoon, and you turn into goo, and then you reform and break out and become a butterfly and fly away. And I think if we look around at our culture, we're in a very similar state of so many of the old ways of doing things don't really work anymore, but you know we're sort of hanging on to them. A lot of things are dissolving and falling apart. We don't know what's going to take their place. And, you know, what is the new form going to be? And then if you're a caveman, you know, you think back to, you know, being these tribal peoples roaming back and forth across the world. You know, over that period of sort of humanity's evolution, there were nine ice ages. And in the last and fiercest one, 
what would happen in ice age, you get you know two to three hundred foot walls of ice moving steadily down from the north across the continents, you know, pushing and squeezing remnants of humanity into little tiny pockets of warmth or relative warmth. And they estimate that at the lowest, you know, humans were reduced to about 10,000 people in, in, in the last most severe ice age. And then, you know, the ice age, the ice would recede and the numbers would, would grow back. And, you know, what, what made it through, what made us through, I think, was not only our, our innate resilience. I mean, the good news for anybody who's going through stuff is that because your ancestors survived so much, you know, anybody born today is born with an amazing inbuilt set of emotional, physical, and spiritual needs and the abilities to meet them. You know, we are survivors. Um, but on top of that, you know, I think what, what helped those so-called primitive humans go through was their shamans, you know, the wise men and women who were able to access those other dimensions of reality and bring in information, bring in answers, bring in, you know, because what a shaman does in a traditional culture is, you know, they go look for where the animals are. They look for the way forward. They make sure that it's sort of the right time to do things. But they also invent things. I mean, who, I mean, two, two, two remarkable examples from the, from the Amazon, ayahuasca, the hallucinogenic brew, or curare, which is a poison used to um, hunt fish. And curare's chemistry is actually the basis of all modern anesthetics. Well, ayahuasca is, you know, the very precise combination of two plants that do very, you know, one of them is the psychoactive plant, but it will not, it loses its potency in your stomach. So there's another plant that protects it from stomach acids. So the chemistry is actually quite complex, quite sophisticated. And when the, when the early researchers, botanists, would ask the, the shamans, how did you learn to do this? And they said, well, the plants told us. The botanists thought, well, these people are lunatics. Um, but to think that it's trial and error to come up with the right combination of two plants in a jungle that has 140,000 plants in it, there's just not, a there's not enough time in the world to do that many experiments. You know, yeah. So just mathematically, it's impossible. And then curare is, is, is an even crazier story because curare is six or seven plants that are brewed together. And you have to cook it for 70 hours. And for all those 70 hours, the steam that comes off the pot is so toxic that one breath will just drop you dead. But on the 70th hour to the second, it becomes inert and turns into kind of a chewing gum material that you could chew without any effects. But again, a tiny bit of that in your bloodstream and you'll drop dead. But to think that you could discover that through trial and error is kind of hard to imagine. So, so the shamans say, you know, we learn this stuff, you know, the spirits communicated with us. And, and science is full of stories of people who got the answer to things in dreams and in other states of sort of altered consciousness. So that's, that's kind of the background to why it's important to become aware, different ways. So, so you know, what comes out of shamanism is, is again, this culture that, that's connected with this larger picture of reality. You know, we are one strand of spiritual being amongst, you know, the spirits of the rocks, the spirits of the trees the spirits of the animals, the spirits of the planet, spirits at all different levels. Uh, Michael Harner is an American anthropologist who's done a lot of work with traditional shamanic peoples and done a lot of my training and studying with his foundation for shamanic studies. He tells a very funny story about working with ayahuasca shamans in, in the Amazon. And they were off doing these you know, epic journeys every two or three nights to meet with the spirit of the anaconda and the spirit of the forest and the spirit of the jaguar and work with them and things like that. And he started, he was meeting the spirit of the blender and the spirit of the outboard motor and the spirit of the transistor radio. And he went to the shaman and, and was describing this experience. And the shaman said, well, what do you expect? I mean, there's, just, there's spirit in everything. It's just that some spirits are more useful than others. Some spirits are more powerful than others. But there is spirit in everything. You know, I've, I've seen that in the sense that, you know, working with students and working with clients, you know, corporate people will go meet the spirit of a project that's not doing well and discover why it's not doing well. Um, and this can be on the level of meeting the spirit of a spreadsheet 
I mean, you know, and, and this was not an ordinary spreadsheet. This was something that had been two years in the development and was supposed to take data from 35 countries for a seven billion pound, you know, multinational comp company and spit out useful answers. And it wasn't. Uh, so this client, you know, journeyed to meet. I mean, first they, they called me to see if I could do a healing on spirit on, on the project. And my sense was that was not the right answer. And I said, no, you need to journey to meet with the spirit of the project and see what it needs. So they, they, they journeyed with a spirit helper of theirs and they met the spirit. And so the spirit, their spirit helper was doing stuff to this landscape that somehow represented the spirit of the project. So there was sort of spirit help and healing taking place on the one hand, but at the same time, as they were observing the landscape and the pattern in the tree, the pattern in the jungle, they understood where the problems in the spreadsheet were, which is, I think, why I, I had this intuition that, that I couldn't do the journey for them, because had I seen those patterns, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have meant anything to me, but they, they did. So that's, a, that's, you know, that's one example of the sorts of things that can happen as you, you know, from the, from the kind of practical. So, so within these cultures, there is this ability to connect with other dimensions and get help. So the second layer of what shamanism is, is a set of methods, a set of practices to do a very simple thing. It's to expand your consciousness at will and go to the upper world, the spiritual level of the middle world, which is where we live, what we think of as normal world, the real world, or the lower world. These are all dimensions or levels of reality. And you can access and get help, different kinds of help from these different dimensions. So a shaman is just basically someone who can, who can you know, flip the switch, expand their awareness at will, go to these other dimensions, get power, get information, get healing, get help, bring it back. And the third level of, so you know, you've got the culture, you've got the set of practice, and then the third level is, in a sense, the person who has refined their ability and developed their connection with spirit helpers to the point where you know, they can be useful to other people. You know, making this connection with the reality is something that everybody can do. It's, it's a skill. It's like learning how to drive a car or ride a bicycle. You know, as long as you have a certain basic level of, you know, physical health and mental balance, there's no reason you can't learn how to do this. And it's, in fact, our birthright. You know, that it's something that belongs to everybody. And, and the heart of, you know, shamanism is actually, it's, it's a way of being in the world, of, of, of not as a warm, fuzzy idea, but as a, as a real lived experience that you are connected and part of something much bigger. And you really get to experience that you are a note in the cosmic song. And you really know that. And you are singing it. And so, you know, another way to kind of conceptualize or, or frame the nature of, of shamanic work as its own form of a kind of mystical path or a path of awakening is um, the way I often sometimes describe it to people is that imagine you find uh, a violin in the attic and you can see that it was once quite a lovely violin, but it's a little beat up. It's got a crack, the varnish is worn, the strings might be frayed or broken. So you take it to, you know, the violin repair guy, and he fixes the crack and replaces the worn varnish and puts new strings on it. And that's a lot of what happens in shamanic healing, is that whatever it is that's interfering with your connection with your soul, blocking you, it might be some soul loss or soul fragmentation that means you're not as whole as you could be. You repair those things so that you have a nice intact violin. But an intact violin isn't enough. And you need to keep the violin in tune. And basically, that's my understanding of any spiritual practice, whether it's meditation, Tai Chi, yoga, journeying, connecting with spirit helpers, ceremonies and things. It's basically a way of just checking, you know, how's my violin doing today? Am I in tune? And if I'm not, let me get back into tune. Because the point of having a repaired violin that's in tune and that you're practicing is that then prepares you to play cosmic music, to have it play you. So that's that's a bit of my TED talk. Um, and I'm kind of interested in the difference between the spiritual healing and the shamanic healing you're talking about. And whether you, from, say, a Western culture, say, in the British Isles or Ireland or whatever, if you go into those cultures, would you say that you can connect with, you know, um, sort of information that may be like druids 
sources and things like that because i know that most of the shame when we hear about it from south america and that kind of thing mm -hmm. i'm wondering if an ordinary person i'm also interested in the difference between spiritual healing which i know you've said you've experienced you know where they cut the cords and they um, remove energetic blocks and things like that and i've kind of learned to do that within myself but, but i'd like to go to sort of the next level where i do receive like really accurate information so i'm kind of interested in the difference between spiritual healing and shamanic healing if that makes any sense okay so yeah say a little bit more about what you how you understand the nature of spiritual healing because i i think of you know shamanic healing is spiritual healing but we could be using the word spirit or spiritual healing in a different sense so l l explain a little bit more about what you mean i would mean um being in a state of total relaxation so not you know being in your right and then being able to tune into your own body and the subtle um levels of the body you know the aura and the the energy field and being able to maybe sense your own blocks there and remove them and let yourself be filled with light color and maybe get some insight into what's causing the block or what situation relates to releasing all of that that's the kind of thing that i i can do for myself and others but i'm i would love to be able to sort of deepen that to when you hear about people that can contact ancestral helpers that can give them very precise information about what plants to use, what herbs. And I'm just wondering whether it's just a question of developing that to a deeper level that I've already been doing or whether it is on a whole different level. I think they're, they're connected. I would say the difference is that when you describe, you know, tuning into your body and removing blocks and seeing energy and stuff like that is it sounds like in a certain sense you are still doing it. Is that correct? Mostly, but sometimes you do feel other energies kind of mm -hmm. going in and helping, but it's a bit yeah. of both. Yeah. Well, see, I think that's that's the major difference, is that the essence of shamanic healing, the essence of shamanic work, really, is asking for help and receiving it. You know, that you are going to something other than yourself, and they're doing the work. Now, part of it, it can be the case that, as I said, it's a skill. You learn to open yourself to something bigger than you, and you let it come through. You ask it to come through. But it, you're not trying to direct it. You're not trying to do anything with it. In fact, if you try to do something with it, you wind up blocking it because you, you're sort of, you're sort of thinking, I know better. Well, um, yeah. So it's sort of a, you know, and it's a process. It's, it's a thing. You, it's, it's something that you learn how to do. From a, I mean, well, let me give you an example of when I was first trained how to do, you know, shamanic healing in the kind of form. A client would come to me, and we would discuss, you know, what was the nature of the help they wanted. Because basically, you go to spirit to get information and guidance. It's a divination-style journey. Or you go to spirit to get healing. And the way I would sort of basically say that, the way I distinguish the two, is you want to understand your situation, or do you want to change it? Because sometimes people, they don't need to change a situation. They need to understand it better. You know, they're faced with a decision. They're faced with a choice. Or they come through the door because they just want the situation to change. They, they, you know. So basically, the, the, the first bifurcation point is, do I want to get information or guidance about a situation, or do I want the situation to change? So that's the difference between a divination request or a healing request. But in either case, if somebody's coming to me, you know, I go to my spirit helpers with that request, and then I come back with the answer. Now, let's say it was a human request. You know, somebody has said, you know, I, I want help with my broken heart, and you know, it's it's around the situation, this relationship, and that loss. So I would go journey and, and sort of go to my spirit helpers and say, I'm here. You know, so and so wants help with a heart. Let me tell you, you know, you need to do a, a power animal retrieval. You need to remove intrusions. And this, and I would come back and say, okay, I've been told to do the following things. And then we would do that. I would explain what it was and they would give, you know, permission to do that. And then I would do that. And basically the shamanic understanding of, of the, the, the shamanic understanding of illness, disease, problems is that, you know, you have a soul. And when you're born, your soul comes into your body and it guides, it animates and directs your body throughout your lifetime. 
and then when you die, it leaves. And then different traditions have different understandings of what happened at that point. But things can happen during your lifetime that interfere with your soul's connection with your body and sort of with you. And that that's the, that's the sort of spiritual origin of any problems. And I can give you an example of that in a minute from my own experience. So that the diagnosis is essentially you're either removing something that was blocking, that was getting in the way, and that's removing intrusions. And that's where, you know, the healer uses their connection with helpers and teachers, and they sort of borrow their eyes and their hands to see and remove what needs to be removed. And then the other major form of healing is, broadly speaking, is returning something that was lost or bringing fragments back. So there can be soul loss through either major dramatic stuff or even very minor stuff, that something will happen that causes your soul to go into hiding because the soul has a self-protective mechanism that when it's threatened or endangered, it leaves the body. That's where all the out-of-body stories come from. But when the danger is passed, the soul just goes back into the body, but sometimes not all of it will go back. Obviously, you know, this is true of big, scary, you know, traumatic stuff. I, I talked to someone who had been in a, um, an IRA bomb blast about 12 or 15 years ago and survived. But they said in addition to, you know, the post-traumatic stress and the physical rehabilitation, they were very aware that somehow they were essentially not there anymore. But it doesn't have to be big, scary stuff. I mean, in South and Central America, there's a very strong prohibition against doing what's called susto. You don't scare or startle people. And I don't think they really necessarily appreciate where this comes from. But that's a shamanic understanding. If you startle someone like that, you can literally scare the soul out of them. Or another example is, say, take a little child running down the street, tripping and falling, slamming into the ground. You know, looks like a fairly typical childhood thing. But with someone that small, and in a sense that delicate, that could literally cause some soul loss. And then another very common form of soul loss in the modern world is anesthesia. That you know, when you're put under, your soul leaves for self-protection. And a lot of people report, you know, after the after surgery, I just never didn't feel quite myself. So the, the other major form of, of healing is bringing back the missing or fragmented soul parts. Another form of soul loss that can take place is, I mean, soul stealing is much rarer in our culture just because we don't have you know, malicious shamans in the pay of a jealous rival. But you can have soul giving mm -hmm. in a relationship that is very enmeshed or you're watching, you know, a loved one ill or die, you know, sick and ill or die. You can unconsciously give parts of yourself away to them in an attempt to help them, which backfires on two levels. You're fragmenting yourself, but two, it doesn't help them because it's not their soul stuff. You've not only fragmented yourself, but you squandered it at the same time because it, it can't do anything really. So those are some of the, you know, the broad strokes of, of how we get ill and then how we get better. Now, what was interesting was in working with, you know, clients in the way that I'd been trained, I would come back with these diagnoses, you know, soul loss, power attitude. But about half the time, I was told, don't do it for them. Teach them to do it for themselves. So right then and there, I would teach them how to go to the lower world and find their power animal and cradle it to their heart and bring it back. And that was a you know much more powerful experience than doing it, having it done for you. And I think that's also in part because I think it's, it's what the times demand of us is more and more people who can do this for themselves, not rely on other people. We need to be start taking our, our spiritual power and autonomy back. I don't just want to fix the problem. I really want them to go out the door over time reconnected with spirit because I, you know, I, I know what a difference it's made in my life, you know, to walk around feeling that I'm part of something bigger and that there is all this help and love and, and, and humor and, and power out there that just wants to connect and engage and, and be a part of my life and, and me be a part of, you know, there. So to answer your earlier question, what you describe as spirit healing, I would describe as working with sort of spiritual powers and principles, but it's mostly self-effort. It's not it's not sort of consciously asking spirit in to do it for or with you. 
the reason I, I bring that up is because it actually touches on two other strands. There's a old Sufi saying that the bird of paradise flies to heaven on two wings. One of them is self-effort and the other is grace. And that's really the heart of, of working shamanically. The self-effort is learning how to journey, how to expand your awareness, go to these other dimensions, connect with spirit helpers, ask for help. But the grace is allowing the mystery in and to let the journey happen and to trust with what's happening and going with it and doing and bringing back what you've been given. So that might be a good, good time to sort of describe a little bit about the, the practice and the mechanics of all this. That I think what I'd like to do now, do you have a, a candle and a stick of incense there? And then we'll continue next week's show by going into how to hold a ceremony, how to prepare yourself. Follow that with the Greenwood Walk, which is a shamanic-themed guided visualization. So that's halfway to a fully free journey. You're, you're going to be expanding your awareness using the drums, but I'll be guiding you through a somewhat structured process. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. This was The Way of the Awakened Soul with Andrew Wayfinder. I hope you enjoyed the show and you're inspired to go live your life of meaning and purpose. Please leave a review on iTunes and make sure to go to thewayoftheawakensoul.com to get your questions answered on the show and win a free healing or divination session for yourself. Thanks and goodbye.